Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is God's word. Let's pray as we come now to study the Bible together. Let's pray. Our Father God, we ask your help as we come to your word. Would you uh, grant us the humility to hear what it is that Jesus is teaching us? And we pray this uh, in his name, asking for the help of his spirit and for his glory. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but actually I never really grew up reading uh, the uh, fairly well-known children's books, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. Actually, <clears throat> since I became an adult, um, I became rather more interested in them. Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? You think it's a children's book, but then you grow up and you finally understand it. Um, some of the characters intrigue me uh, now in those books, the queens in particular. In the first book, the Queen of Hearts has a phrase that she says to anyone who displeases her, off with their heads. Uh, Not to be confused with a little-known punk rock band from Minnesota that uses that as its name. In the second book, uh, the White Queen uh, says instead something different. She has a different kind of saying. She she says uh, that she can believe six... Impossible things before breakfast. The passage in front of us this morning is telling us neither to be like the Queen of Hearts nor like the White Queen. (laughs) You see, as Christians, we are not to react to every doctrinal aberration, every moral failing, or every matter of potential personal offense by shouting immediately, Off with their heads! Some Christians do. They are quick to declare anathema and fast to spot heresy. On the other hand, while we are not to be like the Queen of Hearts and judge other people, neither are we to be like the White Queen and believe everything and accept everything. It is no virtue for a Christian to be gullible to believe six impossible things before breakfast or to throw your pearls before pigs. 
Jesus is asking for subtlety, discernment, distinction, careful assessment, characteristics that I find are a little bit lacking among contemporary Christians. These days, it seems the louder someone shouts, the more likely we are to feel that they're speaking the truth. It reminds me of the preacher who noticed that his argument at one point in his manuscript was a little bit weak, and so in the notes, he wrote in pencil next to the sentence that he thought was uh, not that great. He wrote, weak argument shouts louder. It will take wisdom to know whether a particular situation is one which requires us to make a judgment. If we are not to cast our pearls before swine, it will require us to be able to discern whether certain people are behaving in pig-like ways. Perhaps you've heard the, uh, the saying, if someone calls you a donkey, ignore it. If two people call you a donkey, look for hooves. If three people call you a donkey, saddle up. Or, whether this situation instead is one which requires not judgment, but mercy, lest we be judged. I would say that these six verses this morning are probably the most important text in the Bible for us, as we, these days, try to engage with contemporary culture. What does it mean for us not to judge? What does it mean for us not to cast our pearls before swine? And how does all this apply when an NBA player comes out of the closet? My guess is that if you ask people today outside the church what was the one text they knew above all, it would be this, judge not lest you be judged. I doubt they know, do not cast your pearls before swine. You see, we live in a time when the one thing you must not do is make a judgment on someone else, lest you be judged. Unless uh, you are making a judgment about someone being judgmental, in which case you are quite free to make as many judgmental, censorious comments as you like. You could say that the biggest problem of our society today is that we have forgotten that you can be discerning without being judgmental. Jesus has been explaining, you see, throughout his sermon how to live as subjects of the kingdom of heaven. This is the theme of the sermon. The point of the sermon is that to do so means to recognize that Jesus is the king. That's why by by the end of the sermon, they are astonished not by his teaching as such, but by he who did the teaching. He teaches as one who has authority, they were saying, not like the scribes. For the way into the kingdom he had taught is through acknowledgement of our need of saving, being poor in spirit, our need of Jesus himself. And once we are filled with his Holy Spirit, we then become salt and light pointing to him. We follow Jesus as the fulfillment of the scripture and we practice prayer, giving, fasting as before God, not to impress other humans hypocritically anymore. We serve God, not money. And we seek first the kingdom of God before everything else. Well, now it would be natural for such people to begin to feel spiritually superior to others. 
And so now in chapter 7, Jesus explains how we're to avoid a sense of spiritual snobbery. The whole theme of this last section of the sermon is judgment. And Jesus begins by telling us not to judge, otherwise we will be judged. The thinking is clear. If we act in judgment over someone else, we cannot at the same time claim to be ignorant of what the law requires. That's why the same measure is used that we use for other people. Uh, Jesus is not talking about being a judge in a court of law or exercising our critical faculties or being discerning, as he will make clear in a moment, we do need to judge in a discerning way. We're not to be simpletons accepting everything or believing six impossible things before breakfast. What he means is a judgmental spirit, a critical spirit. Sensoriousness is the technical word. Ultimately, you see, to judge someone in this sense is to put yourself in the seat of the judge, that is, God. It is uh, to decide who is and who is not in the kingdom of God. This basic ultimate judgment then leads to a practice and tendency of ongoing fault-finding in other people. We examine their lives and find them missing some ingredients that we consider to be particularly essential to being in the kingdom of heaven. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And such judgmentalism of other people is to be avoided because it boomerangs back upon yourself. If you go around finding faults in other people, you will discover that people will find fault in you. There is a reflexive echo to the critical voice. So the frequent fruit inspector is the one whose fruit is most likely to be inspected. And it functions not just at a human level, You see, there are two ways biblically to approach God, justice or mercy. And those who insist on judging are insisting on justice and being judged. But not only are we to avoid this because judgmentalism boomerangs back upon us, also because it is inherently ridiculous. The idea of trying to perform sensitive eye surgery while having a 4 by 4 in your own eye is not only gross, it's funny. A cartoonish picture worthy of the Japanese cartoon-style anime. Or slapstick humor. Being critical of other people, not only boomerangs, you see, it also blurs our vision. For by the nature of life, when we find something annoying in someone else, it is often, I'm afraid, because it's a matter about which we personally struggle ourselves. If you find a speck in your brother's or sister's eye, it may well be a sign that there's a log in your own eye. The first task, then, is to deal with our own eye before we try to perform sensitive eye surgery on someone else. We can become so sure that we are right about everything, so cynical about everyone else, that we end up with the ability to see through all 
But if we see through all, in the end, we really see nothing. Now, we're not to assume that we know the motivations of someone else's heart. Only God knows the heart. We're not to play God over someone else's life. Judgmentalism, that is, acting as God as judge in determining who is and who is not saved. And the critical spirit that stems from that overarching attitude. It boomerangs back upon us and it blurs our vision. See, Jesus is not just giving us an often workable principle for self-serving advancement. This is not Jesus' think-win-win. The judgment in view is the judgment of God. That's true that Jesus does not explicitly state that here, though he does. Later, those who pretend to follow him but don't really, when he says, he will tell them on the last day, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers, right here, a little bit later in this chapter. There is this sense of judgment that goes throughout the last chapter, and it is here too, though not explicitly stated. We have to remember who is speaking. Think of how this would have been heard. Judge not, or you will be judged. Who is speaking? It is the Lord Jesus himself. Where is the authority to judge? Look at it like this. He was a great king. He had beaten all his enemies, he had established himself, and now could afford to send off the commanders of the army to a war at spring and himself take a nice long spring break. And as he was doing so, wandering around, excited, no doubt, by the animal spirits that always arise in young men at spring, he noticed through the lattice a beautiful girl bathing. He wanted her. He was king. He took her. Then he covered his tracks. He called the husband back from the front lines, and when the husband refused to sleep with his wife to ensure that he would not notice that he'd been cuckolded, David, but this was the king, had the husband murdered by means of military assassination. Then came along the prophet, Nathan. He gained audience with the king and told the king of a local rich man who, when a guest came to town, instead of killing one of his own sheep, went to his poor neighbor and killed his only one. This little ewe lamb was the loved and cuddled possession of the poor man. The rich man had plenty, and he could have killed one of his own. David was incensed at the injustice and in royal rage declared the man must die. Nathan, prophetic courage at its best, looked his king in the eye and said, you are the man. That's what Jesus is talking about, do not judge. David had transgressed, he knew it deep inside, and what did he do to cover it up? He performed this classic psychological maneuver of venting his righteous, self-righteous, let it be known, anger upon another. He was judged by this. 
The logic of Jesus is inescapable. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 2. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. If we sit in judgment in God's place on his legal throne that only he can occupy, if we sit there and judge another, we cannot claim to be ignorant of the law or innocent of it when our own moral failings come to bear, and we all have our own moral failings. All of us do. And so we exchange the pangs of conscience for the sword of accusation. It is ridiculous. It's also dangerous. Optical surgery is a delicate business. If you ever go to a surgeon, you're probably encouraged by the finely fashioned hands of any kind of surgeon who's about to operate upon you. You would not want a blind eye surgeon, would you? It's ridiculous. It's dangerous. And so we need to develop, as Augustine put it, deliverance from the lust of vindicating ourselves. These things are often deeply ironic, sometimes in an almost funny way. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a thorn in the flesh to the Baptist Union, which he accused of doctrinal compromise and what came to be known as the downgrade controversy. Uh, But when Spurgeon died, guess where they put up a statue to him? At the entrance to the then headquarters building of the Baptist Union, nonetheless. So we should examine ourselves, take out the plank, apply the test. We are so eager to make others pass to ourselves and see what grade we get. And only then, when we have been so humbled, are we fit for the greatly sensitive task of helping remove a piece of foreign debris from a brother's spiritual vision. The way to avoid being unfairly criticized is to avoid unfairly criticizing. However, the way to avoid being viciously personally attacked, Jesus carries on in verse 6, is to avoid treating pigs like princesses and dogs like divines. You give pearls to princesses, not pigs, and holy things to God, not dogs. Few harsher terms could have been used by Jesus. Pigs, of course, were unclean. Dogs, well, they were not nice, cozy, lapdog chihuahua. But the mangy cur street hound, dirty and infested with fleas. To be able to not throw our pearls before swine means then knowing the difference between a pig and a princess and the difference between dog-like behavior and God-like behavior. And this involves using our critical faculties, discerning. Some have said that Jesus means uh, here the sacraments of the church. This was the view of some of the early Christian fathers expressed in the Didache. Jesus then will be saying, don't give the communion to non-believers. 
But apart from the unlikely association of non-believers as dogs and pigs, an uncharitable attitude the Bible nowhere condones, let alone advocates, the metaphor of hungry animals being infuriated, being presented with something other than food, falls apart when it refers to physical, if ceremonial food of the bread and the cup. Others have thought that uh, by this Jesus may be expressly forbidding evangelizing non-Christians. But this runs counter to practically everything that Jesus taught and did in that regard. His famous great commission when he commanded such evangelism of all nations and the preaching of Paul, etc., etc. John Calvin said, nonetheless, that we should present the doctrine of salvation indiscriminately to all. Even Calvin said that. The most commonly accepted view is that Jesus here is referring to his own practice of leaving behind those who obstinately and categorically refuse to accept his message. He told his disciples to do this too, to shake the dust off their sandals. And Paul practiced the same, uh, preaching in one place while he was accepted, but when rejected, going on another. If this is right, Jesus here is uh, talking about evangelism, about the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the great pearl of great price, which Jesus describes uh, in that way in another parable of his, and, but urging us to evangelize strategically and not in such a way that forces the message down the throats of those who do not want to hear. Well, that's certainly good counsel, and it's certainly biblical teaching, and it's certainly an application of this picture parable here. It is, it seems to me, though, somewhat surprising that Jesus suddenly has evangelism in mind when he's been talking about relationships between brothers and sisters and the new community he's initiating under under the Heavenly Father. Jesus could be referring specifically to false teachers. Uh, Peter, a little later in the Bible, joins together these same two animal metaphors in the same context of people who should know better because they know, have heard, and in the case of Peter's letter, have become teachers of the message of Christ, but have decisively rejected it and taught a false message instead of it. He says, of them are the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. 2 Peter 2 verse... 22. And indeed, later in this chapter, Jesus will refer to false teachers. Perhaps. At any rate, generally speaking, Jesus is making the point that there can come a moment when someone has, for one reason or another, so rejected God in their heart that to keep on pursuing them with the spiritual treasure of heaven, which is sacred, with the pearl, is unwise. Why? Because if we do, two things will happen. They will trample them underfoot, that is, they will treat the message with scorn and perhaps even blasphemy, and they will turn upon us. Instead of being grateful for the help, they will become vicious, if only verbally, in response. So the great uh, ancient preacher Chrysostom described this as people living in incurable ungodliness. Professor Jeremiah said it is those who have wholly abandoned themselves to vicious courses. John Stott said, the fact is that to persist beyond a certain point in offering the gospel to such people is to invite its rejection with contempt and even blasphemy. 
discerning when this situation has arrived is not easy. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, longing to gather the city to him. And then over other cities, he declared that they were in a worse situation than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus dismissed Herod and responded differently to Pilate. He refused to give miracles to Nazareth. And then he offered clear physical proof to Thomas. Unfortunately, in real life, the bad guys do not arrive with atmospheric warning music at their appearance like they do in the movies. We must discern. We must not judge. Judge not. Fudge not. Discern. Do not judge. Or neither off with their heads nor six impossible things before breakfast. It seems to me that every second Sunday these days a new issue emerges which requires this kind of mature Christian discernment. When the Da Vinci Code was all the rage a few years ago, one scholar had to point out that the idea that Leonardo had depicted himself in the painting of Mona Lisa was, of course, absurd. He said, she's wearing a dress. I would find it astonishing if Leonardo wanted to picture himself in drag. I hear the mantra of tolerance in our society all the time, don't we? And so the Christian church becomes weak, supine, even spineless. We react against that, and the Christian church is now full of those who feast on roast preacher each Sunday lunch. Or preachers who save their venom for other preachers, especially those with larger churches than them. We do need to discern. We don't need to judge. That's God's job. The Apostle Paul said, what do I care if I'm judged by you or any human court? That's God's job. He goes on, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his reward from God. This is his principle of do not go beyond what is written. That is, accept each other at face value. Don't become a fruit inspector, much less a heart inspector. The censorious judger, in John Stott's words, is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. We must askew what A.B. Bruce called this Pharisaic vice. We must also discern. Certainly the Da Vinci Code needed some discerning. But then there was Galileo, whose ideas were ahead of his time, but certainly should have not meant that he was vilified. 
discern, don't judge. What of the NBA player who made his announcement this week? It is between him and God, do not judge. Do not fudge the truth either, for it is between him and God. And neither he nor anyone else will thank us for failing to make that equally plain. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that in your providence on this Sunday as we consider these words and not judging, we are also remembering our the Lord's Supper, communion, where one was judged for us that we might receive mercy. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.